Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Charity Charge Show. It has been a lot of fun um, recording episodes. And this week, I am with Charles Thomas, who is the executive director of Outward Bound Adventures. Charles, thank you so much for coming on. I'm excited to interview you. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Stephen, for inviting me. Absolutely. You know, I've got a lot of questions for you. And, you know, what I just want to share with the, the audience is, um, you know, how much I appreciate you and, and we collectively all appreciate you and all the other wonderful nonprofit leaders. It's really what is so moving to me. And I just appreciate that um, you're out there doing the good work and you've been doing it for a very long time. Um, would you mind sharing with the audience just to start? Um, we'll get into your background, which is important. I want to ask you some questions about that, but tell us um, what Outward Bound Adventures is and what your mission, um, maybe share a couple of examples um, about your organization, please. Absolutely. So Outward Bound Adventures was created about 60 years ago, and it was um, it has a very interesting beginning. There is a, a little white woman that came out from Milledgeville, Illinois, and she came out to Northwest Pasadena. She was a teacher and she landed at uh, a school called Cleveland Elementary. It just so happened to be the same school that Jackie Robinson attended. He's the guy wow. who broke the color barrier in uh, Major League Baseball. Um, and she had she was a science teacher and she noticed that when she started taking her kids outdoors that their uh, grades improved. And so she started doing that a lot more. She created a junior Audubon club and then she created a science club. And then out of that science club came uh, Outward Bound Adventures. She got together with a bunch of uh, uh, parents, parents of color. Uh, back then, Pasadena was still very segregated. So the black and brown folks all lived in Northwest Pasadena and the white folks lived in another part, East and West Pasadena. So, um, she got together with a group of uh, concerned parents, a former Tuskegee Airman. Uh, wow. His wife was a teacher and counselor. And then the first African-American in um, the Sierra Club. And they, they formed the science club that ultimately became Outward Bound Adventures in 1962. That's awesome. Um can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, what it looks like in present day, some of the programming you have, um, what you're doing with the, with the youth? Yeah. One of the things that uh, sort of uh, was the genesis that came out of the main program of Outward Bound Adventures, the main program was called Get Out and Learn, Goal. And it was directed at uh, bringing the underserved, the overlooked and avoided populations into the outdoors and connecting them to a bigger picture of themselves and a bigger picture of nature, which they traditionally didn't have even a small picture of because most of the folks that we were serving back then were inner city folks. So a lot of folks from inner city East LA, uh, inner city South LA, and just a major urban areas. And so the Get Out and Learn program eventually morphed into, when I took over uh, I was fortunate enough to be mentored by the three founding directors. Um, but when I took over, we changed that into our, to several different programs. And those programs are our teach me to camp program, which is for single 
low-income mothers to get out and camp with their family or their kids. Uh, we have another program called ERT, Environmental Restoration Teams, which is to teach folks how to do restoration work, mostly urban kids of color, how to do restoration work so they can uh, transition into a career in conservation. And then our big program is the Youth Advisory Council, the YAC, and they are the ones that inform all of our other programs. They keep us contemporary and they say, well, that's not going to fly with young people or this is mm. going to work, but it's all done in an outdoor setting. They have a, their own set of curriculum. Then we have another program called, of course, DALI, which most people know about, and that's the Diverse Outdoor Leaders Institute, where every year we train about 25 uh, urban people of color that come from the communities that, the, uh, that we serve. And they then we turn around and then we hire them. They go through 15 weeks of training. We turn around and hire them. They become our staff. And then the last program we have is called the Environmental Studies Expeditions. Uh, and those are our longer courses. They go anywhere from two days to 26 days out in the wilderness. And they're all set to um, next generation science standards. And they're all learning about something around the outdoors uh, and science. That's awesome. It's awesome. You know, I felt, you know, when we were first chatting, um, you know, a few weeks back we met, I felt really in a way um, connected to your organization, but also completely separated, right? I felt connected because I remembered um, being fortunate enough that my school would take us um, on different um, uh, leadership and like skills-based learning through outdoor education. There was a place in Maryland where I grew up called Genesee Valley. Um, and it was a ton of fun and they had ropes courses and all those sorts of things. Um, but then I also felt disconnected from it as well, because I was, uh, had a lot of privilege in my life, you know, which I'm really grateful for. Um, um, and finance access, you know, to financial resources, you know, that my parents, you know, were able to provide for me. So, I'm curious, could you talk a little bit more to just expose it for people that are listening that maybe um, aren't exposed to challenges, you know, that, that minorities and people that are uh, less uh, financially able are facing? Can you talk about some of the challenges that, you know, the youth are facing and, and maybe just any sort of, I don't want to call it like highlights or examples that you've seen over the years of just how this has had such an impact on um, the youth? Yeah, I'd love to. Thanks for asking that question, Stephen. It's a wonderful question. Most people um, don't have a clear understanding of some of the barriers that mm -hmm. urban low-income people are facing because there are self-imposed barriers um, that is, extend from, you know, um, for many different reasons. There might be, you know, like African-Americans not feeling safe to go into the woods. I remember talking to one of our founding directors, the Tuskegee Airmen, and I said to him, Mr. Chris, aren't you, when you go out there, aren't you afraid? Because they, they would go out for 14, 15 days in the woods. Aren't you afraid of getting eaten by a bear? And he just laughed at me and he said, I'm not afraid of getting eaten by a bear. I'm afraid of getting killed by those rednecks that are out there. Right. So, that, this was in the 60s and the 70s. Wow. I remember mm -hmm. asking that. But so there's there's these self-imposed barriers uh, out of safety that uh, were derived from, you know, the, the ugly past that they've experienced. And then there's just barriers of the 
unknown, the lack of education, lack of exposure. And then there is, uh, you know, some traditional barriers like um, unconscious bias that happens a lot. Uh, I remember bringing a group of kids up from Watts, it was all African-American kids, and we were pulled up to a ranger's kiosk and I'm asking him, you know, hey, what's a real difficult trail to travel on? So he looked past me and looked into the van. He saw all these little black kids and he said, oh, you don't want to go on that trail. You want to go on this trail. And I said, no, no, no. We want a really difficult trail. These kids have all been out before and blah, blah, blah. And and so he said, no, no, you don't want to go. That that trail is too difficult. And I was asking him for a specific trailhead. And then he, you know, he started asking me, do you guys have water? Do you have a lunch? Do you know how to read a map? You know, and and he was just uh, approaching me as if I was a, a novice, and I, you know, mm-hmm. I, I was really upset with him. But I, you know, real calm. And then, uh, you know, a, a little a white family walked up to the kiosk, and and there was a two young girls and the mother and father, and they said, "We're looking for a trail to go on." He said, "Oh, go on this trail." It was the very trail that I was asking to go on, you know. And so there's this. And I don't think that that ranger woke up in the morning and said, okay, what am I going to do to keep people of color off the trail? I think his unconscious bias was acting. And then there are, uh, so I can't tell you how many times where we've gone out and um, we've decided we're going to camp next to another group. And our group typically is all kids of color and the people will just pack up their stuff and leave, you know, they'll just, you know, some people will just say, oh, you know, we prefer our privacy, but other people just pack up their stuff and leave. In fact, we had one uh, uh, group of people that packed up their stuff and went and called the ranger and asked to be escorted out of the woods where they were because they felt like they weren't safe. So there are a lot of barriers like that. There's um, uh, discrimination, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lack of representation when you go into the National Park Service, which is really trying hard to change, or any other major land management agency, and you see no one who looks like you. You know, it's very easy to uh, say, well, maybe I don't belong here. So there's that type of thing. And then there's uh, a marginality where people just uh, don't, aren't able to get jobs in that particular area. Um, there is also um, the fact that m- many trailheads are not anywhere near urban areas where um, low yes. people tend to cluster, right? Trailheads tend to be further out. And then there's no public transportation to the trailheads. So there's a lot of um, different barriers that uh, we talk about. But there are probably two that I refer to as the barbed wire barriers, uh, one of which is the inability for um, outdoor education. As you said, you were sort of privileged and you got to go out when you were younger. That doesn't happen. You know, they, these folks don't have outdoor ed school. They don't have summer camps. They don't have Uncle Ned to take some camping. You know, or mom and dad don't go on summer vacations in national parks. So they have no clue. I did a survey recently uh, in classroom of... Um, recently I mean pre pre covid uh classroom and there were 30 something people and then i asked the kids they're mostly african-american uh how many of you know where your nearest national park is and none of them knew not a single kid knew where their nearest national park is and that that's not because they don't care it's because they have not had the exposure or education about that kind of thing 
it's important that you point those out and I appreciate it. Um, I want to shift gears for a second because a lot of obviously our audience, we work with a ton of nonprofit organizations and leaders. You've been the executive director uh, for over 16 years, as I understand it. Um, That's <laughs> I'm curious, you know, and, and feel free to reflect, you know, I, I try to keep these interviews as loose and light and organic as possible. So I didn't softball or send any of these questions in advance. But I'm curious to you, like when you entered, you know, 16 years ago or so as the executive director to now, what do you think have been um, the biggest changes in how you lead the organization? Um, and maybe, maybe sort of nothing's changed or maybe, you know, but I would think naturally you've learned and grown over time. So how have you potentially evolved as, as an executive director and a leader and, and or any of the learnings that you've kind of taken away from over the, over the years? I like that question because I've been reflecting on that. Um, I've actually done two stints at Outward Bond Adventures. I did uh, 15 years, and then I went to work for the National Park Service as a regional ranger over the Pacific West region. I got to just back. interrupt and just tell you that, you know, that's so cool. Um, I think part of why I, I just, I like you so much. I just feel a even with Zoom, I feel like a some sort of energy connection here. Um, when I was graduating college, they had me take the Myers-Briggs. And uh, the number one job that was uh, that I was a fit for was Park Service Ranger. <laughs> and right. I didn't go that path, but I always, I always think about that when I'm contemplating <laughs> what I'm doing, well, you know, have, uh, you know, for, with my, with my work and my career, but go ahead. So you were at uh, Outward Bound Adventures and then you took a role as a park yeah. ranger. Yeah, I took a role. I left for five years and I went and uh, created programs and ran the youth uh, management uh, portion. Uh, there's congressional funds that are allocated to go out to develop youth programs for the Pacific West region, which is 59 national parks. Anyway, I did that for five years and I came back to Outward Bound. And when I came back, I was very different. I was very different because I had just worked in this paramilitary bureaucracy that's huge. The National Park Service is huge, you know. If you think about it, you know, an organization that has 27,000 employees, right, and, you know, and has parks all over the place, all over the world, actually. Um, so uh, there's a, it was created in a time where a bureaucracy was needed, uh, and, but it's, not, it's no longer needed. And so you spend an inordinate amount of time doing a lot of um, tracking and trying to uh, document on paper what you're doing. And you spend less time actually in the field actually doing what you're doing. Unless you are a, I was at a, a, a bit of a higher range. I was in the management, top management section. So I oversaw 59 national parks and the youth programs that were in the national park. But anyway, when I came back, I brought sort of that that uh, mindset with me, OBA, and I realized that that wouldn't work in a smaller nonprofit. Uh, nonprofits have to be a couple of things. But if not, one, they have to be excessively nimble. You have to be able to stop and turn on a dime because the people that you're serving sometimes will need one thing over another thing. And if you can't deliver that, then you're, you know, what it, what you're trying mm -hmm. to do makes you ineffective. Uh, also, a nonprofit is to be ex extremely resourceful. 
you just don't have the the steady cash flow that uh, for profits have. Most nonprofits don't. But where I've changed, I think most, Stephen, where I've changed most is actually looking at how um, we measure what we do. I think if you can't measure your impact, then you can't prove that you're doing something that you say you're doing. And for us, it's about how do we engage more urban people of color in the outdoor arena and get them moved towards careers in conservation. So we have to measure that. And OBA is well over 80,000 people now of serving them and getting them closer to the outdoors. And it's amazing. I'm, I'm working like crazy. We're developing an instrument with the Chicago School of Psychology right now to measure how much we're moving the needle. The other, the other thing I'll tell you, and then um, we'll move on to the next question is, I think that I look at the caliber of the staff that we're hiring before it was a, hey, you know, you want to work with kids and you, you, you know, you want to be outdoors, let me train you. But now we're very, very particular about the caliber of staff because you're really working with some serious social emotional issues that you have to pay close attention to as you move kids from the inner city to the deep wilderness, which we do often. Good question though. Well, great answer. You know, I think that, um, especially what you talked about being nimble, being resourceful and, um, you know, being able to measure are, I've always was nimble and resourceful. I think that I've only over the past probably 12 to 18 months, um, been measurable, so to speak at charity charge in any material way. And I used to have an advisor um, who unfortunately passed away, an excellent person, Martin Slachter. And, uh, but he used to always say to me, um, if you don't measure it, you can't manage it, right? Yep. And so, so I mean, I, I think it goes, obviously it rings true from a funding perspective and being able to show impact and all of that, but it gives you a barometer internally to then start adjusting. Um, so I've become a huge fan and we really <laughs> probably over-measure almost everything internally and kind of operationally at charity charge. But at any point in time, I can pull up our dashboard. We use Salesforce and that has a lot of customer reports in it. And then we use Google sheets and we track everything. And it's really, it's really enlightening when you can see trends and other stuff pop out or you could, it just starts to expose issues. So I highly, highly recommend that. Um, yeah. I want to, I want to ask you sort of a, Going back to your earlier years, I mean, as I, you know, was doing my homework on you, um, you know, one of the things that really stuck out to me was your passion and um, steadfast commitment to conservation, the environment, um, you know, and I know that a lot of that started um, when you were at Southern Oregon University, but I wanted to sort of get from you, why are you passionate about this? Was there something about your childhood or your own parents? I mean, what do you think? Because it sounds like, I mean, you were at least passionate about this as a college kid, right? Did it even predate that and why? Yeah, it did. It did predate that. And the uh, answer I'm going to give you probably is going to be shocking to you, but <laughs> um, I, my passion didn't begin so much out of... Um, so I, I grew up in a housing project in Northeast LA. It was a very poor housing project and a lot of crime. 
Um, but across the street from that housing project was a big, big dirt lot. Uh, well, a, a lot that was undeveloped. And I would go over there and look for lizards and birds and just wonder about all the time in that lot. So that began my curiosity about nature. It wasn't really nature. It wasn't until we moved to Pasadena and I got involved with Outward Bound Adventures at a very early age in 1968. I mm -hmm. got involved with Outward Bound Adventures that I started beginning to realize that we have an impact on the world. Remember, I was growing up during the late 60s and the 70s when major things were happening in the environment. That's when the Clean Water Act was created. That's when the National Environmental Policy Act was created. That's when the Endangered Species Act was created. All of this time were in my formative years. And so I became an environmentalist. But the thing I was going to tell you was um, why I really wanted to be outdoors more is because as a teenager, I got in a lot of trouble, Stephen. I don't know if you that pops up in my in my background, but Let me I was, check it out. No. I was incarcerated for um, well over 13 months and I was in juvenile hall and then I was in something called suitable placement, which is a place the courts put you. It's really an honor camp. But during the time I was in juvenile hall, and I remember this like, like it was yesterday, um, I was sitting in the room in this little eight by 10 cinder block room locked behind the door. And I had already been on an OBA trip. I had already been to the Sierras. And something happened, somewhat of an epiphany was, I'm sitting in this room and I am thinking about the Sierras. And I said, you know what? I, I, I don't think I'll ever want to come back here. I don't want to be, I don't want to lose my freedom. I remember the sense of freedom I had in the Sierras, mm -hmm. uh, backpacking through the Sierras. And that was one of the things that actually drove me it was the fact that I lost my freedom and I was incarcerated and I deserved to be incarcerated. Some of the stuff I was doing was not good stuff, but uh, I lost my freedom. And then, uh, uh, you know, just remembering back to when I had it and hiking through the Sierras really pushed me to go out. And, and from that point on, I spent a lot of time in the wilderness there. After that, I developed this reverence and respect for the wilderness so, you know, there were all these little things that were happening in my life in the 60s, especially in the late 70s. But the loss of freedom probably had the most profound impact on pushing me outdoors. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. It's pretty unbelievable. I'm, I'm glad you turned out the way you turned out, you know. it's. <laughs> but I think that's also true. I mean, talk to me. I, you know, I'm, I'm just sitting here. It's, it's interesting to me people's... Um, uh, passions, how that then turns into service for others. So I just think it's interesting that you had this experience where you were in juvenile hall. Um, you, you realized how valuable freedom was to you and that um, how much appreciation and gratitude you had, you know, for the outdoors and that sense of freedom. And it was that pursuit, not in a negative way at all, but almost for yourself first. Mm -hmm that allowed you then to give to others and sort of like the connection that I'm trying to make um, is we all talk about selflessness. We all talk about helping others. Um, but the other sort of cliche thing that I learn is the more that you're true to yourself and you are 
living, um, you know, you're living your, your life for yourself. It, it then turns into service for yeah. others, which is a really beautiful thing that you just said. I'm curious if you have any comments on that. Yeah, I do. You know, it, 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 I did want to keep my freedom, but I think one thing that really energized me from the very beginning, I was placed in a gang intervention program and um, I was fortunate enough to recognize some of the, you know, I had the cognitive wherewithal to figure out, okay, this is not for me, the stuff that I was doing, but there are a lot of people that just didn't have it. They, they had this victim mindset or they didn't think that they could, they didn't have a growth mindset and in the outdoors, you can really easily develop. You're much more malleable in the outdoors. So when I was going outdoors and doing this kind of stuff, I, uh, that, that I, I can remember very clearly, I said, I want to dedicate my life to helping other people turn the light on by getting outdoors. Mm. And, it, and I think that at that point, it was, you know, any pursuit that you get joy from could be considered almost selfish, right? <laughs> but I decided that I needed to help young people who are like me that had gotten into trouble, who didn't understand the value and the therapeutic value and the, the, the life-changing and transforming impact the outdoors can have, I decided at that time, I must have been 18 or 19, that I was going to dedicate my life to making sure that people who couldn't get outdoors got outdoors. And that's one thing I can say. I, I, I've messed up on a whole lot of things, but that's one thing I've always been true to, is making sure that underserved people get connected to the outdoors. That's awesome. That's so beautiful. I want to, as we round out this interview, I want to focus on um, something exciting that I know you've been working on for a while, which is your book um, that will be released shortly. It is titled uh, From the Hood to the Woods. And, you know, this book, I, as I understand it, highlights your 40 years of experience um, as it's written, designing outdoor education programs and facilitating urban youth into the wilderness. Um, and uh, for those that are interested in learning more, I'm sure that there's going to be a lot shared with that book. Um, and I hope, uh, I hope to get a copy. I'm, I, you let me know where I can pre-order it or even <laughs> get a signed, a signed copy. But I think that's so awesome that you're going to be putting this together um, into a book. You must be excited for that. I am. It's, it's, a, it's a long time coming. It's done. Mm -hmm. uh, my daughter and my niece are helping edit it. My niece just got her... A PhD actually in, wow. in communications. And so awesome. she, she's, she's an awesome writer as is my daughter. My daughter's an incredible writer. And so they're finding things in the book that uh, I've already had it professionally edited. They're finding things in the book that even a professional editor didn't find. So we're going through that uh, last rendition. We're adding the photographs and then it goes to the publisher or we're even thinking about self-publishing to move it along faster. But uh, I've had two offers from publishers. Um, but I, yeah, I am excited. It's been um, probably six, almost seven years now that I've been working on it. In fact, it's amazing. It's crazy. It was too big at one time and I had to cut it down there telling me to make it into a series of books. But Wow. Wow. <laughs> I can't wait to get a copy. So I think that that's... I think that that's awesome. Um, and I want to call out too, for those listening along, 
again, this, uh, this episode of the Charity Charge Show has been with Charles Thomas, who's the executive director of Outward Bound Adventures. If you're interested in um, getting involved, supporting their work, finding out more information, their URL is obainc.org, obainc.org, obainc.org. And I just think what you're doing is um, really tremendous, you know, obviously on the organizational level, and I'm inspired by and moved by your background and your whole story. So thank you for being um, inspiring to all of us, Charles. Uh, you're quite welcome. And I appreciate the work that you're doing to support nonprofits. And I'll tell you that you're an excellent host. You know, you have, yeah, you well, thank have you. About, uh, disarming people and pulling out good information that people, other people need to hear. So you should really uh, continue to do what you're doing in terms of your, your podcast. You're a very good host. Thank you so much. Yeah, I need to, I do need to work on, I'm upgrading my setup a little bit and <laughs> trying to figure out where is it? It's, it's tucked behind here. I have a sort of a lamp, a light situation. I got to get figured out, but uh, <laughs> it's good to have some raw talent, right? And then you can add on all the accessories and the fancy yeah. stuff, right? Uh, thank you so much. Uh, we're going to wrap this one up again. Appreciate everyone that's been part of the Charity Charge community. Um, new and old friends. Take care. <laughs>